Good morning. Do you have us? Are we buffering? Are we streaming? I hope you've got us. We want to welcome you here and just try to imagine that there's people that believe in Jesus and are trying to walk with Him all over this time zone right now. All different forms. We had someone uh, email us this week. They watched us in their car as they drove through Kansas. That'll make Kansas go way faster. My name is Todd Zeller. It's good to be with you this morning. This is Lori Prophet. And uh, some of you know, I think uh, Pastor Tim might have already said, this is the fifth Sunday of the month. And traditionally, on the fifth Sunday of the month, we try to sing all hymns. And we're going to um, do just that today. So... It's going to be completely different. I'm going to pretend I'm at home in my bedroom just like you are. And uh, I'm just, it's just Lori and I singing away. Um, You know, we might get them right or we might not. And uh, I know it's a little bit awkward singing in your living room, but may these old, old songs, some of these are hundreds of years old. May they, may God use them to bring your perspective up. To bring your perspective up, to turn your eyes up at our living Lord. Let's see if you know this one. called up yonder. When the trumpet of the Lord shall sound, the time shall be no more. And the morning breaks eternal bright and fair. When the Savior shall gather over on the other shore. And the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. When the roll is called up yonder. When the roll is called up yonder. When the roll When the rose called the thunder, I'll be there. On that bright and cloudless morning, when the dead in Christ shall rise, and the glory of His resurrection share. When the chosen ones shall gather to their home beyond the skies, the rose called the thunder, I'll be there. When the rose called the thunder.
Pastor Tim wanted us to start off with that today, so because uh, we're actually taking roll, and um, we we know who's tuning in and who's not, and uh, I'm just teasing, but um, that did strike me while we were singing that song. I'm going to take this off. And, um, yeah, you sit back, see if you know any of these.
16 of John. These days bring lots of questions. Will it last another two weeks? Will it last two months? When will my little stimulus come? How do I apply for it? don't it just comes lots of questions do I have the coronavirus and I don't know it yet does that guy across the room have it Jesus asked his followers do you finally believe but the time is coming and indeed, it's here now when you will be scattered. Each one going his own way, leaving me as in Jesus alone. Yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. I have told you all of this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth, 
you will have many trials, many sorrows. But take heart. Be encouraged. I have overcome the world. I have told you all of this so you will have peace in me. Here on earth, it's going to be tough. But take this to heart. Trust in this. I have already overcome the world. Maybe right now in our family rooms, in our studies, in our bedrooms, wherever you are, maybe in your car, wondering if we can bow our presence, bow our head, maybe close our eyes. Father, we come again. And we open ourselves. We take our hands off the controls. Again today. And we're reminded that you are God. And that we are not. We're reminded that you know what tomorrow holds. And we don't have to know. reminded today that you hold the whole world in your hands. We don't know what we're supposed to learn, what you're trying to teach us. Maybe for everyone it's different. But we do know that you're asking us to trust you remember who you are what you're about to remember that ultimately you are good and that's a different definition of maybe what we like to think do you want to call out to him now whether you're by yourself or with your family. Maybe someone would like to pray right now about your specific world, your specific people. all this so we would have peace in the midst of the dark in the midst of the unknown here's an oldie but a goodie 
I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses and the voice I hear falling on my
take my hand, precious Lord, and lead me home. Same thing again. Oh, 
and slated that Lori would say something. I don't know if she's going to. <laughs> I have on the next one, but that's okay because I was actually thinking during singing because he lives. Um, a lot of you may have seen the video going around this week of the people in Brazil and the people in Italy coming out onto their balconies and filming all different places within these countries of people coming out and singing the chorus of Because He Lives. Brazil sang it in Portuguese and Italy sang it in Italian and the meaning still comes across. It's still the same and their faith is being built because they're trusting our God because he's faithful and everything that he says, every promise that he's made, we've talked about this and I said it, I think I said it last week that he's never broken a promise, not once. He always comes through. He's faithful. He knows what's coming. He knows what lies ahead. None of it surprises him. He's not shocked by any of it. And he just wants us to lean into him, to trust him, to believe him, and to choose to rest in that. And sometimes I think that's the hardest part is just choosing to rest in him because we're always out there as humans saying, but what if this happens? And, oh, what if this doesn't happen? Then what are you going to do? What, what am I going to do, Lord? How am I going to make it through this? How am I going to make it through without a job? How am I going to make it through if I get ill or if one of my family members or friends gets ill? But he knows. He knows what that is. He holds us all the same way in his hands. He creates new life as all of this is going on. A baby was born in our family this week. And we got to celebrate that new life. And it didn't surprise him. And that little baby came into the world saying, yeah, okay, let's go, Lord. What are we going to do now? And is waiting with expectation to grow into him. How precious it is to have that childlike faith that we all need to lean back into and choose to step back into. Because he is a father that takes care of us. He is the shepherd that goes after the one. He'll come after us. He won't leave us high and dry. And he certainly will be faithful to us. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. Spring 
joys of text messaging. Lori texted me. <laughs> she said, uh, I, I gave her all the hymns that we we might do, and uh, she texted me back, well, well, Tim wants to do this song. Um, does Jesus care? He wants to do this hymn. And, and I honestly, I thought it was a different Tim, and I texted Lori back, this is not Request Sunday. Anybody cannot just request a song. I said, we're not doing that one. I've never heard of it. And then she, she texted back, oh, yes, we are. <laughs> it's Tim Stearman. Oh, yeah, that's that interim pastor guy. So, uh. remember Pastor Tim it's okay to do his songs does Jesus care when my heart is pain too deeply for mirth or song As the burdens press and the cares distress, oh, on the way grows weary and long. Oh, yes, he cares.
concerned about. But I think this is one that people are concerned about, have been. For quite some time, the writer of that song wrote those lyrics in 1901. So I'm guessing in 1901, someone wondered if Jesus really did care. And I have a sense that in these days, when uh, there's this new strain of virus going around, we wonder, does Jesus care that that's happening? Or when unemployment uh, numbers hit over 3.5 million this last week of new claims of unemployment, does Jesus care? With people living in isolation in their homes for fear of contracting some kind of illness, does Jesus care? With the stock market plummeting and anxiety skyrocketing, does Jesus care? Or when a church like this one, which on any given Sunday morning would be filled with worshipers here, eager to participate in this worship time, and now on a Sunday like this, we're down to six people in the room. Does Jesus care? Is that a question that's even necessary today? 
I think perhaps it is because it wasn't just an old hymn writer 119 years ago who wondered, but it was also a group of apostles that were in a boat. We find them in Mark chapter 4, beginning with verse 38. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was. It's interesting to me, it says, they took him along. Because I have an impression that that's what a lot of us do. We don't walk with him or follow him. We just kind of take him along. They took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat. So that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? I like the old King James Version better where it says, don't you care if we perish? Because I think that's more the question that some of us are asking these days. Do you not care? I read an interesting little article this week that said that the, in, the, in, in the animal kingdom, the human of the species is the only member of the species that has an imagination. Imagination is a pretty marvelous gift, I think, because with our imagination, an artist can create some kind of an incredibly beautiful piece of art, or a musician can write some incredible piece of music, a, a, an architect can design some beautiful place in which to live, or a building in which to work, a church in which to worship, or a writer can conjure up all kinds of tales to keep us uh, wrapped in attention as they share those with us. That's imagination that's working. But there's a downside to imagination. Because we have imagination, we also have the ability to worry. Worry is a result of us being able to imagine. It's when we take that imagination and we use it in terms of imagining the worst instead of imagining the best. And we can do that. We imagine every possible scenario of how things could possibly go wrong. Does Jesus care? Disciples are in a tough spot. They're afraid. Their imagination is running wild. You talk about worry. It might have been even more than that. It might have been panic. It was beyond the realm of anxiety. Their imagination, imagination was working overtime. But if you flip over just two more chapters to Mark chapter 6, you find that the storm is behind them. And now, with Jesus, they have left that situation behind. And now it says that he went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples. And he goes into the synagogue and it says, he began to teach and many who heard him were amazed. Not the least of those probably was those disciples who had already experienced him saving them, salvaging them from shipwreck. Don't you care that we perish? And it says that they ask this question. Where did this man get these things? What's this wisdom that has been given to him that he, he even does miracles? 
Is not this the carpenter? And it's almost as though they're putting down the whole trade of carpentry there. And now suddenly the setting seems quite pastoral in some strange way. Because that storm is past. That thing that had them so frightened. And now they're back in a church setting. A place where they should feel much more familiar. But now, if the disciples weren't saying it, they were at least hearing other people say, where did this man get these things? What's this wisdom that's been given to him that he even does miracles? Miracles like calming a storm? I read this little incident over in chapter 6. I've read it many times where this crowd of startled worshipers in a Jewish church listened to a preacher and after the service they left the synagogue and they were in some level of amazement and they were asking that question, Is, isn't, isn't this that carpenter? So we have moved from do you not care, to, isn't this the one who does miracles? Oh, just that carpenter from Nazareth. One day, those words sprang to life for me. And I began to perceive the real significance of this short little phrase, not the one of, uh, do you not care, but the one that says, is not this the carpenter? And so I closed the book, and I threw the reins up on the back of my imagination, and I let it run wild. Centering on this little incident at the synagogue and the question, isn't this the carpenter? And with my imagination running, I saw the shop, that carpenter shop, opened out onto a cobbled street. And over the doorway there was a sign in my imagination and it said, Jesus, Ben Joseph, carpenter. Which meant Jesus, son of Joseph, carpenter. And inside, the carpenter himself bends over a cedar plank, which he has clamped down to the bench. And he wears a leather apron and hot sweat trickles down the side of his face. And he reaches for his knife and then for his mallet. And the odor of newly cut oak and cedar drifts out through that open door. And in my imagination, I could see a farmer that would enter. And after speaking with that craftsman, He leaves, and then a shopkeeper from up the street, up Main Street there comes and steps inside and visits with the carpenter and leaves, and then a housewife comes, and and each of them conduct their business with this carpenter who does miracles. And then in my mind, I could see him sweeping up curly shavings from the floor of that workshop. And I thought those would probably be used to kindle the fire the next morning because carpenters start their work early before the full heat of the day. And then I realized that for the first time, I was seeing Jesus in this unfamiliar setting, a setting in which He spent six times as much of His life as He spent in that other setting that I'm so familiar with, His earthly ministry. 
for 18 years, I suppose, he was there in this shop before going out to spend three short years in the work where we usually picture him. And it was here in that shop that his character was being formed. It was here that he received the anointing of the Spirit for a ministry that would eventually take his life. But I can't imagine that he just suddenly assumed some level of divinity one day. See, it's impossible for me to think of this Jesus who is in that shop mending a broken table being less than the Jesus who mended broken hearts and broken lives. That during those 18 years, he must have been working out principles and learning and thinking and praying and, and studying in such a way that eventually some would say, where did this man get these things? This one who does miracles. And others would have such confidence in him that during the storm, they would cry out, don't you care if we perish like a carpenter could do something with a storm. No, you see, this carpenter was the Christ. And the Christ that you and I serve was a carpenter. You think about that for a moment. Because it tells us some very important things about this Jesus. Things are important for us in times like this when His character and His ability are being called into question by those who in our day would wonder, does Jesus care? Here's some things you might want to know. That Jesus was a man. The word carpenter carries a wealth of ideas with it. My own father was a carpenter. He worked for Santa Fe Railroad for 43 years and spent most of his time in the wood shop, in the mill. He started when he was 17 before he went away to World War II. And while he was there at 17, his first job in the mill was shoveling the sawdust. So much so that at 17 at Santa Fe Railroad, everyone there had a nickname, and my dad's nickname was Sawdust. And he carried that. The 43 years he was there. And even after he retired, when he would walk into McDonald's to have coffee with his friends, I would walk in with him on occasion and I would say, Hey, sawdust. He had that put on the tag of his old Model A Ford. That was the tag. Sawdust. But he brought those tools and those skills home with him. His shop was filled with tools that were used to shape wood. And his hands, though my father was smaller than me, he was about five foot nine. But his hands seemed huge and yet tender, though they were calloused. And when I think of Jesus as a carpenter, it suggests to me that whatever else he was, Jesus was a, was a man. This carpenter who was hard at work, strong muscles standing out on his bronzed arms as he bent over that bench to work. He was not a phantom or a ghost. He was a real man of flesh and blood living the life of a Galilean citizen. That was the way his customers saw him. He wasn't afraid to work. He wasn't afraid to work hard. Back-breaking work was not beneath him. He wasn't some little sissy that he usually gets painted as by the artists of a couple of generations ago. And it suggests that 
any customer who employed him to do some work could rest assured that he was dealing with a person who was a conscientious tradesman. You see, he dealt with the public naturally. It was part of his daily routine. He would chat with a customer. He would work out an estimate. He would draw up plans. He would quote them a price. He would receive their payments when the job was done. He would make out a receipt and sign his name, Jesus Ben Joseph Carpenter. And those customers were confident that they were dealing with an honest man. His prices were right. He was satisfied with a fair margin of profit. His accounts were correct. Jesus was a man. And the word humanity could be right next to his name. And Some of you may be saying, well, pastor, what does that mean to me as I wonder or worry about the next few weeks or months? It means that he experienced from this life much the same things that you experience in it. We have a tendency to put him up on a pedestal and assume that he didn't feel any of those things that you feel. But he knew disappointment. He knew heartache. The Bible says that he wept when his friend Lazarus died. He knew some degree of anxiety because in the garden... In the Garden of Gethsemane, he sweat great drops of blood as he anticipated the crucifixion. He knew pain. When he was on the cross, he was, again, not some ghost or phantom. Those were real hands that the nails were going through. And the Bible says that he knew temptation. What tempts you? Don't answer. Not out loud, at least. Hebrews 4.15 says... For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet without sin. And I can hear you. You're saying about now, oh, he wasn't tempted by the things that tempt me. Oh, really? You think not. The Bible says, in every way. He was human. But the word carpenter also reminds me that he was a maker. You have to picture it. Taking a log from up in Lebanon and splitting it and sawing it into planks and hewing it and fashioning it it into something for some article of furniture for a home in Nazareth. From that shop where he worked, no doubt he constructed wheels that would go on a cart or the axle that would hold the wheel or the yoke that would hook the oxen to the cart and all of them carefully shaped with his own hands. Those very same hands that were to touch some sufferer with tenderness and later have nails driven through them on a cross A carpenter nailed to a cross. He was a maker. Let me me challenge you just a little bit. Because I think there's a verse that refers to him, and we don't give him credit for it, but it says, All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And that wonderful statement only affirms, at least for me, that right back in the very beginning, 
before the hills stood in order or before the earth received her frame. This carpenter was at work then too in his original home with his heavenly father and he was making things. For you see, he was a carpenter then too. And he didn't stop being a carpenter when he left that shop in Nazareth. In fact, he's still making things. This one who built houses and barns and stables one day said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And these days we wonder. We use our imagination which can cause us to worry about the church. Can we weather this stuff that's been thrown at us? During the Great Depression, during the World Wars, during the Great Recession, the church was always the harbor of hope. And it was not out there somewhere. It was here. It was the place where people would gather and drop anchor and seek encouragement and peace. But this current challenge has us Closed down, six of us in this room right now, hopefully a number more who are watching the, the stream. It's a different than we've known. It's a different process than we've known. And many churches like ours are working hard to catch up and try to figure out how do we do this with this new paradigm that we're living under? Does Jesus know? Does he care? I want to suggest something that some might have a struggle accepting. In our concern about building the church, we may have forgotten that it's not our work to build the church. That really is his work. He said, I will build my church. He didn't ask if I was going to be involved in it. He just said it was going to happen. He was going to do it. But it is my work, it is your work, it is our work to be built. Because the raw material that he uses for building his church is men and women just like you and me. Oh, but listen. The Bible also says that he's building a place for us to spend eternity. In John chapter 14, verse 2 I love this verse. In my Father's house are many mansions. New International Version says rooms. I like mansions better than rooms. When I get to heaven, if I get a room, okay. But I'm going to be disappointed if it's not a mansion because that's what it says in the old King James Version. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. Now, just think. Let your imagination run a little bit in a good way. Not to foster worry, but to encourage hope. If he could make this beautiful world in six days, just imagine what he could do in 2,000 years. And he's been away that long preparing that place. But might I suggest that this ver that verse means more? 
When he says, I go to prepare a place for you, I think he's talking about more than heaven. I think he's talking about your tomorrows. Let me illustrate it this way. Just a couple of months ago now, I guess, our previous pastor's wife, Sarah Troxel, boarded a plane and flew to Houston where she started looking in houses that she and Brian had selected off the internet. She started going through those and she selected the home out of that group that they had where the family would live. And I guarantee you that as she walked through those houses and especially the one that they purchased, she already knew in her mind which child would be in which bedroom. She was already in their future. And I believe that God is already in your tomorrows. And He's preparing those as well. But the word from the text might imply something else. Because in all that he was doing, coming events were beginning to cast longer shadows across his path. And the days came when he left the carpenter shop, and the Bible says he went about doing good. And then as he moved from town to town, people brought to him their broken bodies and their shattered nerves and their disappointed hearts and their crippled characters, and his ministry was largely a ministry of mending. Some bring him their broken hopes, and he remakes them, giving them a new hope that doesn't fade away. And some come to him penniless and bring him their broken fortunes, and he gives them a new value of things. And some bring him their broken hearts, and the Word says he binds up the broken hearted all of which only goes to prove, at least in my mind, that after 20 centuries, this carpenter's skillful touch has not lost its ancient power. Does he care? Oh, I believe he does. This man, this maker, this mender is with us still, and he's still in the process of mending broken things. The day came when other carpenters took wooden beams and fashioned a cross. And with carpenter's nails and mallet, they nailed him up to die. But they did not stop him from mending broken things. And nothing is so badly broken that this carpenter cannot mend it. Your career, your health, your relationships your marriage, your home. I like the hymn that Todd led us in, under duress, I might add, because I asked him to. And I like this verse. Does Jesus care when my way is dark with a nameless dread and fear as the daylight fades into deep night shades Does he care enough to be near? Now, you can sing that, and there is kind of a melancholy feel to it. But then you come to the chorus, and you hear the timpanis begin, and and the, the timpani player 
is pounding on them. And you hear the bass begin to pick up some strain of, uh, of anticipation. And the orchestra begins to swell. And the violins begin to play. And you go into the chorus of that song. Oh, yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. When the days are weary and the long nights dreary, I know my Savior cares. So the apostles ask, don't you care if we perish? Jesus answered that through all of his earthly ministry. And then the songwriter in 1901 jumped right on top of it and said, oh, yes, he cares. My message for you today, isolated at home as you are, don't you long for the day when you can get in the car and go to a restaurant and sit down inside? I do. But as you're stuck in home, at home, wondering, letting your imagination run so that you begin to worry, rein it in. And let your imagination run so that it brings hope. Oh, yes, He cares. I know He cares. His heart is touched with my grief. When the days are weary and the long nights dreary, I know my Savior cares. Pray with me. Father in heaven, the joy today is brought about by your faithfulness. We are gathered, but not in the way we normally gather. We're gathered around we're gathered around computer screens or phones or iPads and listening, but maybe not listening as well as we would if we were still here in this church. But, Father, we're trying. We're trying to figure out how to do church when we're still at the house. And, Father, somehow I believe that from my mouth, through whatever the electronics are to get a message to people who are listening, that your spirit has the ability to go and not just, not just take my words, but you have this uncanny ability to change what I said into what someone needed to hear. And I pray that my friends in Tulsa today or Broken Arrow, my friends in Olathe, my friends in Florida, my daughter in Parker, and those who are a part of this church who listen today heard what they needed to hear you say and not just what I thought I needed to say. Father, I pray that you'd be with our people as we're scattered, that through this process, you would use it in ways that we can't imagine yet to draw us closer to you and to give us a greater sense of appreciation for what it means to gather in this place and lift our voices in song together until this room vibrates with the idea of worship. May you bless your people today and keep them in your care, I pray, in Jesus' name. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May He make His face to shine upon you and give you peace. God bless you. Have a great week.
single race, how sweet.